Hi, I'm Tess Vigland, and as we work, we are burning out big time. I knew I was burnt out when I started crying every day. <laughs> I knew I was burnt out when falling asleep seemed like a chore. <laughs> I knew I was burnt out when the only voice I could hear in my head was the harshly critical one. This is As We Work from The Wall Street Journal, our show about the changing workplace and everything you need to know to navigate it. That was Nina Nall, Brandon Pachuca, and Jessica Sinarski. We spoke to them on the streets of New York City. Coming up on the show, how you doing? Really, how are you doing? The pandemic created hardships on a global scale, both at home and at work, leading to a rise in burnout. So if you're not doing great, welcome to the club. We're talking about mental health today and how businesses can help employees deal with the unique ups and downs of a post-pandemic workplace. Three, two, one. What will the world look like 10 or 20 years from now? The Wall Street Journal's Future of Everything podcast is here to give you a peek, and we can't wait to show you what's coming. Subscribe now. It would have seemed absurd at this time last year to say that anything good had come from a global pandemic. How can you have silver linings to an event that caused so much anxiety and trauma? But we're seeing now that the events of the last two years have prompted all manner of change in everything from our new appreciation of frontline workers to how we talk about things that previously didn't get much airing, like mental health. If you felt like the last two years took a toll on your mental health, you're hardly alone. A study from the Boston University School of Public Health showed that rates of American adults reporting elevated symptoms of depression rose from 8.5% before the pandemic to nearly 33% by the fall of 2021. I recently had a chance to talk about this with social psychologist Amy Cuddy at the WSJ Health Forum, one of the many virtual and live events we'll be taking part in, and inviting you to participate in for this podcast. She's a Harvard lecturer and best-selling author and is perhaps best known for one of the most viewed TED Talks ever about body language. But we spoke about why the American workforce has become so depleted, burned out, and what businesses or bosses can do to help us turn the corner. Amy has coined a new term for it, pandemic flux syndrome. Pandemic flux syndrome is unique because we are dealing with a situation right now that most of us have never dealt with. It's a prolonged crisis, and it it is kind of throwing us back and forth all over the place. We're in a kind of liminal state where we have one foot on the safe side and one foot on the threatened side, and we don't know what's coming next. So we get thrown between you know, hope and despair with some regularity. It's important to note pandemic flux syndrome is not a clinical diagnosis. But Amy says the result of all this back and forth is very destabilizing. We end up feeling powerless. We don't know when that crisis will ever end, if it will ever end. We've edited our live conversation for time and clarity. 
So a lot of people say that for the first couple of months of the, of the pandemic, they actually felt super productive. And that is that tracks really well with what we know about surge capacity uh, in, in times of you know large scale crises. It sounds like long running adrenaline. It, that's that's very much what it is. Teams yeah. end up thriving. But part of that, it's not just adrenaline. It's that we have a shared goal. The threat mm. seems pretty clear to us. We want to work together. We feel hopeful that we can actually get through this. And we expect it to end. <laughs> we think that it's going to end pretty soon. And actually, right. good, good leaders operate at their best during these times. We call this the emergency phase of the crisis. And so that was what was happening for the first couple of months. And in fact, it's funny because when you look at Gallup data uh, on, on how employees and employers were feeling in the first two months of the pandemic, the number, the percentage of employees who felt that their employers cared about their well-being went from 25% pre-pandemic to 49%. Whoa. Yes. So for the first two months, employers felt like employees really cared about them. We're now back at 24%. Mm. Let's talk about that and, and why that is, you know, and, and clearly um, there are there must be some factors that are keeping us from figuring out how to cope with all of this loss of certainty, loss of control. So what does that mean for how employers, employees are are dealing with each other now on a daily basis? I mean, well, what happens after after we go through this emergency phase, we go into a regression phase, and that is when surge capacity is depleted. People are exhausted. They're withdrawn. I mean, if you can think about this in terms of your personal life for a moment, remember the first couple of months, people were like, let's have Zoom cocktail hour or <laughs> let's have this. And everyone was like, this is great. And then after two months, like one person would be like, oh, I don't really want to do yeah, it. And then no, next, maybe not. That, Right. That was the emergency phase. That was surge capacity. Regression, people become withdrawn. They become self-protective. They start to feel powerless. They, they don't want to interact and they become pretty agitated. We're certainly seeing signs that people are more agitated and you know more short with each other now, both inside and outside the workplace. I don't relate to that at all. <laughs> I know, I know. I wish. I get it. Right. So 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 that's what that's what happens. But but the thing is that we've moved back and forth because of this flux. Um people are moving back and forth. So what happened interestingly last June of 2021 uh the, the there's a, a great index of 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 human thriving, how how much do people feel that they are thriving? Hmm. In June of 2021, that was at uh, at around 58 percent, and so about 58 percent of of people felt that they were thriving. What was happening in, in, when that was measured? It was it was mid June. People thought we were reemerging. So if you look at news uh, articles, yeah. the word emerging or emergence or you know uh, th those were the popular words. One week later, what was the popular word? Delta. Delta, yeah. Right? I vividly remember that feeling of thinking that, oh, maybe this is over. The masks had sort of come off for a, a few days, and then, oh, here we go again. So, of course, people were thriving because they, they felt that they were thriving. They felt that they were getting a fresh start. They felt that there was a clearly demarcated end. And that is something that research by social psychologists show really clearly. People want a clearly demarcated end and beginning, and we're not going to get that. And that's another part of pandemic flux syndrome is that 
there's not an armistice day. There's not a day when everyone goes out and celebrates in, in the streets and collectively agrees it's over. Right. So so because we're not going to get that, that throws us back into this uncertainty again, which really this is like kind of an unprecedented period of flux again in, for people in the workforce now. Yeah. Uh, so so that was really hard. And, and on top of it, in that like sort of early summer period before Delta really took off, people were actually going to concerts and out to dinner with friends and and having, you know, 4th of July barbecues. And, and, and so they thought that they would be ecstatic. They expected mm-hmm. that experience to be euphoric. And it wasn't because people are are always over predicting the intensity and longevity mm. of their emotions. And we call those affective forecasting errors. We're bad at forecasting our future emotions. And so when people realized that they weren't as happy as they thought they should be, they panicked. And so by mid-July, I was getting messages from a lot of people saying, I'm more anxious than ever. I don't know what's wrong with me. I should be feeling better. Why am I feeling worse? Or I'm so depressed. I just want to sleep for two months until this thing is over. So that happened. And, and, and that, I think, exacerbated things further. Well, so here we are two years into the pandemic. Um, and I, I kind of want to talk about, you know, when we take note of this, this idea that there is uh, a, a new openness, this sense that you can actually talk about some of these mental health issues, both inside and outside of work. The question is really how to keep that conversation going, right? Um, So we're at a point where, as you've pointed out, maybe the pandemic is becoming endemic, something we're just going to be living with. What can employers and employees do to ensure that the stigma around these issues is reduced for the long term? Part of the returning um, to something closer to normal um, really involves uh, employers listening openly when employees say, this is what worked for me during the pandemic. Because another thing that's happening is that some people preferred their work situation during the pandemic, but feel kind of guilty about that. Mm-hmm. And and then you have some employers who feel judgmental about people who don't want to return to a regular sort of work life. Um, who want to continue remote work or some combination of that. So for employers to serve their employees and their organization and all of their stakeholders, they have to listen without judgment to these employees saying, this is what worked for me. So, you know, people who were night owls, for example, maybe they were most productive in the middle of the night. Instead, you hear employers saying, oh, you know, all they have to do is move the the mouse around a bit when they're at home and and it looks like they're doing work when they're not. Most people actually want to get good work done. They want to do work. They don't want to just be sitting on the couch. So I think that employers have to, to trust the employees to use this as an opportunity for personal, you know, sort sort of growth for Hmm. self uh, a growth of self-knowledge of what works for us and figuring out how to give employees some autonomy in how they return to work. Because another really important part of a pandemic flux syndrome is that people have lost power. I mean, literally, mm-hmm. we have lost control over our lives. 
And when we lose control and power, we go into a kind of inhibition mindset. We shut down. We we feel closed off to other people. We see challenges not as opportunities, but as threats. So I think that recognizing that people have lost that sense of power and finding ways to give them back some power is really important. Because when we focus on mental health, we tend to focus on anxiety and depression. Right. But power and agency and self-efficacy are enormously important in predicting people's outcomes. We'll be back in a moment with more of my conversation with Amy Cuddy, which we taped at WSJ's Virtual Health Forum. We'll hear what employers can do to help employees who might be struggling. Stay with us. High inflation has impacted many of us. But what happens when prices go up 55, 67, or even 276%? It makes living more costly. It eats into your paycheck. At the end of the day, the salary itself, it's not enough. And money quickly loses value. You can't see if you can't do anything. Check out our complete series on extreme world inflation from A to Z, from What's News, plus other exclusive content on WSJ Special Access, only for WSJ subscribers. So you've mentioned a bit about how employers can give power. Uh, How can employees take power? How can they maybe feel a sense of agency at this point in time? I'm not going to lie. It's not it's not easy. And I think that part of what what's happening in the great resignation is that people are doing the one thing that they can control. They can leave their job. Mm-hmm. Right. So to restore a sense of personal power, I'm not saying everyone, but some people left their jobs because it was a move that made them feel more powerful in the short run. And, and I, I understand that. I get it. I mean, this because what, what was happening also in pandemic flux was that people wanted to get away from the threat, right? So they were making major life changes, like leaving their jobs, moving across the country, in some cases, leaving partners, you know, right? these very major changes actually, to me, reflected a desire to regain a sense of power. So I think first keep in mind, if you're considering leaving, you you might have great reasons and it might be the right move, but also consider, is it it possible that I want that sense of power for a moment and it's not going to last? Is this really the right decision? And are there other ways? So one thing I would say to to individuals is, um, you know, keep in mind that our, our health hasn't just been affected because of COVID directly. We know that people uh, have a large percentage of people have gained unwanted weight. You know, people are drinking more alcohol. <laughs> we see all of these these health changes that are indirectly related. So, so one thing to, we can do to gain power to regain power is to take better care of ourselves. And mm-hmm. I know that may seem small, but another one that I, that I love is to choose a fresh start day for yourself. Huh. Like, like an end of pandemic day for you. Yes, huh. because guess what? We're not going to get that. We're not going to get a an, a, a, an absolute end of pandemic day from any big institution. No one's going to come down and say it's over. <laughs> so instead, you need to decide what is that moment. And you can let yourself be like annoyed and frustrated until that moment. And then you say, I am liberating myself. 
you know, it should be a moment that is is a happy, meaningful moment to you, right? It, it, it shouldn't just be a date. It should be, you know, the day that my kids go to summer camp. Or, right, right. Or, you know, for me, it was, you know, going to see a concert and hearing a particular song. I was like, when I hear that song, that's going to be the moment for me. Oh, I and like that. I'm going to liberate myself. And it really meant a lot to me. So that's one thing that employees can do. I think I might steal that one. Yeah, I like that. I'm gonna listen too. for that song. Um, you know, a lot of businesses have expressed interest in doing better for their workers when it comes to mental health, and I know some of them are calling you uh, to talk with their employees. What kinds of conversations are you having right now with business leaders about their role, about the company's role in helping workers deal with these mental health challenges? Well, I should say, for the most part they want to. And I think that's a good sign, right? So very few people don't get what's going on. Most clients come in going, how do we do this? What do we do? But one of the things that I think that is missing from this conversation is that the impact, the mental health impact has actually hit managers the hardest. So Leaders and individuals who don't have any kind of management responsibilities look about the same on uh, sort of overall well-being and depression. But managers are extremely burned out and uh, they, they've had a rise in cl- like diagnosable depression. Why is that? That's because they are carrying more of the weight Right. So the, the, the people in leadership positions who aren't interacting much with employees, all they're doing is passing down the, you know, here, here, here's our, here are our, you know, here are our policies and here's exactly. when you're going to come back to work. Now yeah. tell everyone. Right. And right. They're the in-between people telling everyone. So they're getting this, these kinds of impossible messages from the top, delivering them to the employees who are like, that is not going to work for me. And everyone is frustrated. It's like everyone is is on the phone with the airline waiting for two hours. And by the time they get to the actual person, they're screaming at them, right? And it's not their fault. Yeah. Think of managers as that person. We tend to think of this in a hierarchical sense, which in many ways is good, right? To think about what are the least sort of powerful people in the organization dealing with in terms of mental health. But actually a lot of it is the people in the middle And think of the fracture that that's causing, right? So how do we help managers? One in four managers says that they feel that they have some kind of work life or life work balance right now. 75% say absolutely not. Yes. Wow. So, you know, these numbers are pretty staggering. And that thriving number that I talked about just across the board has gone down again, uh, you know, to, to, to a more normal level. Even as we are starting to lose mask mandates and hospitalizations going down, it, it, we're still not feeling so great. No. Um, so then as we look to the future, how do we start to move beyond coping and perhaps even into that thriving phase again, both as employees and employers? I mean, one thing I would say is that, you know, where where individuals can have a fresh start day, one of the things that employers are doing that seems to be working is to declare a new day one. It's very similar to the fresh start day, but they're sort of saying for the organization, this is our day one. Hmm. We might be moving teams around because one of the thing, one of the other things that's happened is that teams are not working as well together, partly because of that regression phase, the agitation, they've lost a sense of purpose, they're not sure what their goals are. So reorganizing teams, um, 
allowing employees to have a say in what the new goals of the organization are. How do we set up the workplace? These are small things, but even things like the, you know, the, the physical space for people returning to work, giving employees some control over how to set that up, it restores a sense of power. Hmm. Listen to them. They Again, trust that your employees actually do know what works for them. And the ones who stayed and didn't resign, reward their loyalty. <laughs> yeah. Especially yeah. give them a say. You know, there are people have talked about loyalty bonuses even. Um, so I think I love the idea of a day one. Employers need to see mental health not as an individual issue, but as a collective priority. Right. So, so that it becomes safe for anyone to talk about it and to recognize that people who are like, I'm fine, might still be saying that because of the stigma that isn't completely gone. Right. On the one hand, this has hit women and, and non-white men harder than, than other groups. And on the other hand, the men, men are, to some extent, uh, prohibited from talking openly about these things. So there's a prescriptive stereotype that men aren't supposed to say that they're struggling when maybe they are. So to understand how it's affecting different, different groups of people, I think, is going to be very important. There's really no one size fits all. Which would seem which would seem fairly obvious, but when you're when you're a workforce, it can often be that you're just a collective. Not everyone's an extrovert. Not everyone's a morning person. Like you know, not not everyone has you know has amazing childcare and isn't thinking about that. You know, th there are so many interactions that we need to understand. That I'm not saying that it's idiosyncratic to each person. That, that, that we are that, that employers are able to look at it at that level of analysis. That's maybe too fine-grained. But I do think that they need to be listening to employees and identifying trends, whether they can do that quantitatively or, or you know, in a smaller organization, just you know, qualitatively and responding to those. So yeah, trust your employees, listen to what they learned, see how they can contribute to how things change with the understanding, and I know this frustrates people, we may be in a state of flux for quite a long time. That was Amy Cuddy talking with us at WSJ's Virtual Health Forum. Coming up, our pro tip of the week, how to talk to your boss about burnout. I have to ask you, what is your your fresh start song? Oh, it's uh, it's called "Broke Down Palace" by the by the Grateful Dead, and it's kind of a song about dying in the way that you want to die. And I know that sounds really dark, but it's a beautiful song of of transformation. So to me, it felt like moving from a really dark period into um, a sort of self liberated period. All right, love it. What then will the future reveal? There's one thing we know about the future. It's being built now. We all have a stake in the future. The future. The future. The future. And the Wall Street Journal's Future of Everything podcast is here to give you a glimpse of what's on the way. I'm Danny Lewis. Join us as we dig into how science and technology are shaping the future. For that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And finally today, our pro tip, where one of our life and work columnists answers tactical questions about the workplace. 
We've already been hearing about pandemic flux syndrome. Now we're going to talk about how to address burnout with your boss. Ray Smith is with us. He writes about management and careers. And Ray, I want to ask, how you doing? Are you sleeping? Feeling overwhelmed? Burned out? Talk to me, Ray. A little overwhelmed. I I don't know if it would be technically burnout, but that's the thing that we've been trying to explore. What is burnout? It's not a medical diagnosis at this point. The World Health Organization in 2019 actually defined burnout as triggered by chronic workplace stress Hmm. that brings on feelings of exhaustion, cynical detachment from your job, or reduced efficacy at at work. So you kind of touched on a few of these things, but if there's if there's no medical diagnosis, how, how do you know if you are burned out? There are levels of that, right? There are levels, and there are actually official surveys that a lot of companies use to help workers diagnose burnout. So it would help you identify sources at your workplace. It can be your workload, and maybe you consider it unmanageable or you feel that way. That could trigger exhaustion, and that can be what's triggering what may be burnout for you. In other cases, it may be something that seems sort of vague, like that your values don't align with your corporation's values, and there's a mismatch there. could actually lead you to become more cynical at work, and cynicism can lead you to sort of stop caring, and those can also be symptoms of burnout. What you're talking about certainly sounds like something that, you know, a couple of days off is not going to be the the long-term solution. So if you need something more than, say, a long weekend, what are some ways to approach your boss to raise that issue? I think a lot of workers would worry about looking unable to handle the job or worse that you're criticizing the workplace and the demands that it places on you. Um, One of the key things to do is not just complain, I'm feeling burned out or I'm feeling overworked, but to make it clear that this is a we problem. It's not just me talking about our productivity is going to be challenged because the workload is unsustainable or we're going to make a mistake on this or we're going to have a problem so that it's not just, Ray, if you're feeling burned out, why don't you take a few days off? It's, oh, okay, I hear you. Well, maybe this team needs to think about doing X in this way. Identify which tasks should be priority and which can wait. It sounds like what you're saying is really that the classic is that any boss does not does not want to hear about the problem. They want to hear what your solution is, right? Yes. So so you uh, it's incumbent upon you or perhaps it's just a good idea to come with a strategy. Exactly. Exactly. Ray Smith is with WSJ's life and work team and Ray, I really hope that this interview has not burned you out. Thank you. No it hasn't. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks a lot. And that's it for this week's show. A heads up that on April 12th, WSJ is hosting a day-long job summit with expert advice on how to turn this hot job market into a competitive advantage for yourself. This is for everyone from recent graduates to mid-career professionals. It's a virtual event, and we'll be conducting some live interviews that will feature on the show, interviews that include questions from you. You can sign up at wsjjobssummit.com dot com slash registration. Meantime, next week, we'll have a conversation about workplace relationships and how they've changed over the course of the pandemic. What happens to the water cooler chat 
when a good chunk of the workforce isn't anywhere near a water cooler or a break room or an employee kitchen and nobody's cooking leftover fish in the microwave so we can't all complain about the smell together. What happens to love, laughs, gossip in the absence of a workplace? Join us next time. As we work as a production of The Wall Street Journal, Scott Salloway is our supervising producer, Charlotte Gartenberg is our producer, Amanda Llewellyn is our development producer, Jessica Fenton is our sound engineer, our music was composed by Hansdale Sue. Kateri Yoakum is the feeling you get when all your work is done way ahead of schedule. And she's also The Wall Street Journal's executive producer of audio. I'm Tessa Viglund. See you next time.